1: Welcome to the show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel, San Antonio, Texas, and we're thrilled that you take the time out of your day to tune in. Uh, this is a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering Bible questions and life questions and pretty much anything on your heart. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. Outside the local area here in San Antonio, you can call toll-free at eight seven seven six three zero KSLR. Numerically it's six three zero five seven five seven. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at CalvarySA.com, or you can send questions in via our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, especially on the wet streets today, the safest way to call is to use the free Free KSLR mobile app uh, one button, just call now you'll be connected directly to our studio producer and you can use the hands free feature of your phone one more time for our main number it's 340-9585 well it's Tuesday and I don't have anything to talk about so I'll get right to questions while we await any phone calls the first one comes from Michael Uh, Michael says it's been reported that the shooter at the synagogue in Poway was a member of the Presbyterian Church. How could a Christian commit such an evil act? Now, Michael, here's one of the things uh, where we have to be really, really honest with ourselves as Christians. Christians, of course, can't do these kinds of things. But here's the thing. There's a lot of people who were raised in church, a lot of people that were baptized in the Presbyterian Church who have been baptized as a baby, um, who would say my religion is Christian, um, but they have no relationship, no connection at all to Jesus Christ. And think too often, Michael, as is the case uh, with your question. I think we just think anybody who identifies as a Christian uh, is a Christian, so we're shocked that they could do these things. I told you yesterday, not you, but the audience yesterday, because I had a, a question about it. And this was a satanic act. Um... Jews have been without question the most hated, the most persecuted single group of people in the history of the world going back to the time of Abraham when the Jewish race began and every time you see Jews trying to be killed go into the book of Esther and you see evil Haman it's satanic every attempt to wipe out Jews is satanic at its core and here's a young man i mentioned yesterday 19 years old and evidently until six months ago he was considered to be a nice young man and then this evil just took over his heart there's only one power on this earth that can turn somebody that quickly and that completely and that's the power of satan now i want you to think about judas for a minute michael because judas appeared to belong to Jesus. He appeared to be one of the twelve. He actually was one of the twelve. Judas did miracles. He was sent out by Jesus with the authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. He was the treasurer responsible for the money. And everybody would have looked at him and thought, yep, he's one of them. In fact, some of them would have thought he's the most responsible one. And yet Jesus said that he was the son of perdition from the beginning, meaning he never really knew Jesus at all. Now, of course he knew who he was. But he didn't surrender to his will, to Jesus' will. And too much is given, much is required, and, and he just ended up, as we know, betraying our Lord. So he wasn't a Christian, though he would have looked like a Christian. Well, this young man... Uh, I don't have his name off the tip of my tongue. But this young man certainly didn't belong to Jesus Christ. Now, we can pray for him. We can pray that he does. But the reality is that the devil already has his hooks in him. In fact, not possessing him. We, We don't know that for sure. But this was a satanic act. So the fact that he was raised in a Presbyterian church or was listed as a member doesn't make someone a Christian. The old joke is, is you know, uh, me going to McDonald's doesn't make me a hamburger. Well, sadly for people that will say they're Christians, um, it's our behavior that points us out as Christians or or whether we're not Christians. So, Michael, I think that's the one thing we have to understand. The fact that somebody goes to a church doesn't make them a Christian. The fact that they say, well, I'm Christian, my religion is Christianity, doesn't make them a believer. What makes somebody a believer? Michael, it's being born again. That means we die to ourselves. We say no to us, that we can say yes to Jesus. Jesus said, be my disciple. You've got to deny yourself. you got to pick up your cross. The cross is an instrument of execution. Carry it and follow me. Luke adds the word daily. You've got to do this every day. So That's what it means to be a Christian. And this young man certainly wasn't a believer. Here is a question from David. I've got his name. My producer said his name is John T. Ernest. There's a name that we can all be praying for. Thank you for that. Uh, Here's a question from David. He says, I listened to one of your messages online, and you said you didn't approve of goosebump theology. What do you mean by that? Thank you for having your messages and notes online for free. Uh, David, uh, it's my pleasure to have the messages there for free. And the notes were kind of a surprise to me. Um, I send notes to our translators. Uh, We have live Spanish translation in all of our services. Uh, And sometimes we have uh, American Sign Language as well. Um, And so they get my notes. And somebody said, well, why don't you put your notes online? I thought nobody would want to see my notes. Uh, And pretty much I've got a commentary written that I've done on my own of the whole Bible. Now it changes, of course, from time to time. Not the commentary, but the way I preach from it. uh, Just because there's different audiences. Um, But it never occurred to me that anybody would would be interested in my notes. And we get an awful lot of online activity with the notes. So uh, you are more than welcome for that. Now by goosebump theology, what I mean when I say that... and. I say some things, you know. All of my messages are done in in our church, and the people know the references and they know me. But what I mean by that is, people that go to church or follow Jesus uh, to get goosebumps. By that I mean they're led emotionally. And when somebody is a when I call somebody a goosebump Christian, that somebody who goes to church looking for the chills down the spine or the goosebumps that they get, and they walk out feeling like God was really in this place. Instead of simply saying, look, I know God's here. I know he's with me. I don't have to feel goosebumps. I don't have to have an experience in order to know Jesus is with me. I know it because he promised me. And so, David, what I want people to do is not seek to satisfy their emotions, but but their mind and their heart. And when God's word is proclaimed and the spirit of God is convicting people, or encouraging or directing people, or sometimes uh, just redirecting people. It is a wonderful thing, and often that doesn't come at all with goosebumps. So I, I have no problem with emotions, it's just that when emotions control the people instead of the people being controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. And we live in a church culture, David, where there are so many people who go to church wanting miracles, they go to... Churches where there's nothing but hype and movement and substance, or, or lack of substance. Uh, and and that's not a reason to go to church. In fact, those are the churches that are excessive in their, uh, I call it, charismania. Um, we go to church to get equipped to do the work that Jesus left us here to accomplish. We go to church to learn how to be obedient. And if we understand that, then it doesn't matter whether or not we get goosebumps. Now, there are times when messages can be really, really emotional. There's nothing wrong with that. But what we have to do is take those messages deep into our heart. The people that follow God only emotionally are people whose walk with the Lord collapses, really, when they're in the middle of something really, really difficult, when something doesn't happen as expected. They're not equipped to deal with it. And that's my biggest complaint, David, about um, uh, these charismatic churches that go over the top. And again, I always want to impress upon the audience here that we are a charismatic church. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit but decently and in order. He gives gifts. The the Holy Spirit does as he wills. And I think sometimes we go into a situation trying to manipulate or coerce him to do something um, that's not his plan to do. Church ought to be something that's rational. We go in and use our brain. Church ought to be something that allows us the opportunity to worship. And that worship needs to come from a sincere and genuine heart. And again, David, too often, those who are emotionally driven uh, can worship one day because their emotions are great, and the next day they don't feel like worshiping because, well, nothing's going right, and their hearts are filled with pain. So we've got to understand, walking with Jesus is a rational decision about obedience every single day. It doesn't depend on how we feel. It doesn't depend on whether or not the hair on our arms is standing up. The only thing that matters is our faith in Jesus Christ. So that's what I mean when I say that, David. So I hope that helps. Greg says, Pastor Ron, does God draw only the elect to him? Or does he draw everyone to him? Um, The answer is not as easy as you might think. Everybody is called by God. Many are called, few are chosen. The reason many are called is because God's clarion call to salvation goes out, Greg, to people in this world. Everybody hears about Jesus. Everybody has the opportunity to say yes to the invitation to become his. But the chosen, and I like that word better than the elect. The elect seems to suggest that God says, okay, I'll take you, but I'm not going to take you. I'll take you, but I'm not going to take you. That's not at all. The chosen, and there's no doubt biblically that we're chosen by God. But the, the question is, what's the basis of God choosing us? And the basis upon God choosing us, we know from 1 Peter chapter 1, from Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that the basis for God's, election of us his choice of us is his foreknowledge so the word of God goes out the Holy Spirit is drawing people to God when he comes Jesus said he'll convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment those who will respond well God knows who they are so those are the ones that he draws to himself will God draw somebody who is adamant and rebelling against God the answer is no but it's not God's fault because God has given that call to that person that the person has rejected it. You see, it depends on the condition of our heart. God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. On Good Friday, uh, Greg, I did a message here about Simon uh, of Cyrene. He's um, a small role in our Bible, but it's a very, very significant one for those of us living at least 2,000 years later. Um, he was a, a God-fearer, meaning a proselyte to Judaism. He's from, from Libya, the north coast of Africa. Uh, he, is, uh, he would have been a black man, um, but, but he's a man who had heard about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he knew that was the one true God. You know, the, the stories about the Exodus, the, the parting of the Red Sea, all of those other things were, were world-famous. And he knew this God. He had to know him. So he came to Jerusalem on that fateful Passover when Jesus was sacrificed. But he would have come as a seeker of God. And suddenly he finds himself in the middle of this crowd and a Roman spear thrust in his side. He would have wondered, you know, I just came here to worship God. Now I'm in this mess, and I don't know why, and Jesus would have looked at him, Jesus having fallen down and dropped his cross beam, which is what he would have been carrying, not the entire cross, and he would have looked at Simon, and there would have been just an instant of communication, it's okay, Simon, pick it up, can you imagine what it was like for Simon to look into that beaten, that savagely beaten face, he did, he picked up the cross, course he raised two sons rufus and alexander who were a giant of figures in the first century church paul greets them specifically in romans chapter 16 but the idea is he sought god so god revealed himself to him i also think of cornelius in acts chapter 10 an angel appeared to him and said your alms have come up before the lord and he sent for peter and Peter showed up, he said, God told me to sin for you. We're here to listen to anything and everything you have to say. God rewarded him. The Ethiopian eunuch is another wonderful example. He was a seeker of God, and God makes sure true seekers find him. So, Greg, God calls everybody, but only those who respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Only they become believers. Salvation isn't because of anything a human does. All we do is deliver the message, but salvation is always generated by God the Holy Spirit. And when we understand that, then this confusion between being chosen uh, or being drawn by God or who God calls, becomes really, really clear. Jesus' death was efficacious, everyone who's ever lived but his death was only effective for those who would believe and receive so I hope that makes sense to you Greg. thank you very very much here's a question from Adam pastor on I know you're not reformed so how do you preach both free will and God's sovereignty or election I didn't know those two questions were coming up together uh, Adam, I have no problem, you know, the the way we teach the Bible here at Calvary Chapel, we just teach the Bible verse by verse. If I'm teaching, um, I'm currently teaching in the Gospel of Luke, uh, and in the parables Jesus talks about people who are going to claim to belong to God, but not really belong to God at all. So, so I have no problem. They they either receive or reject Christ on the basis of their own free will choice. And God in his sovereignty chooses those who choose him. But there's no tension between free will and sovereignty. I know we have a hard time with that. Well, if God knows everything that I'm going to do, how is that free will? God doesn't cause the things that we're going to do. Of course God knows everything because God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is um, um, all-present. So of course he knows everything. Yesterday and tomorrow are the same to God. There's no difference. But we think, because God knows the choice I'm going to make, then I really don't have any free will to make that choice. Nothing could be farther from the truth. You know, Adam, I had a Uh, A lady come to me one time and she said, Pastor Ron, I just don't even know if I should pray. God knows what I'm going to do, so why do I even pray? And my response to her was, we pray because he said to. We pray to get our hearts to line up with his. And we pray so that the choices God knows you are going to make are good choices, God choices, instead of the other kind. And I think that's what we have to do. God knowing what we're going to do doesn't mean he causes us to do the things that we do. And God is there to intervene at any moment if we're going to do something or we're tempted to do something we know we shouldn't do. uh, God is there at any moment if we ask him for help. He will help us make the right choice. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Flee from sexual immorality. And those are just a, a couple of the very many things that God tells us to do or not to do. And what we have to do then is make a decision. Am I going to do what God wants me to do? Am I going to do what I want to do? So my free will is involved. God in his sovereignty will use even the bad choices I make to draw me back to him. And we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We all know the verse. But that's God's sovereignty. He'll take the things that we do that are wrong and turn them around to accomplish his will. Now, we can resist him and we can continue to resist him and we can end up in a really, really difficult place. But God didn't cause that when we do it, Adam. So, uh, again, you're right, I'm not reformed at all. And there's just no tension at all between free will and God's sovereignty. So I hope that's clear to you. 340 I think we're inside five minutes for this half of the program. Four minutes, or five minutes now. Uh, Charlie says... The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But it also says many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. And he says, how can I reconcile those two things? Now, what Charlie is talking about is that passage of Scripture where Jesus warns him that on the day of judgment, many who claim to belong to God will come to him and call him Lord. And Jesus will basically say, why do you call me Lord? And then you don't do what I tell you to do. And by the way, that's a great question for everybody to ask every day. Oh, we call him Lord when we pray, Oh, Lord this, Lord that. But if we don't do what he says, we're only kidding ourselves. We're not really in a relationship with him based on his lordship, his control over us. So here's the reconciliation of those two statements. Uh, It is true, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord by faith will be saved. But we have to really call on the name of the Lord. We can't just say it. We have to live it. And so if I call out to Jesus, as I did 28 years ago, and he rescues me, then my conversion, Charlie, is proven genuine by the fact that I walk with Jesus, I continue with Jesus. And, and I belong to him. I know it. I've never had a moment's doubt about my salvation in the 28 plus years that I've been saved. But... It's also true, and all we have to do is look around in church. We see people all the time who also call Jesus Lord. They come to church, they raise their arms during worship, they know how to communicate in this this Christian language that we use. Um, But you look at their lives, and there's no indication that they really belong to Jesus at all. Charlie, we look at one person who says... Yes, Jesus, I'm yours. And you look at their life and they're filled with the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. You look at them and say, yeah, that describes their life. That's because they really know Jesus. But you can look at another person who says they are, they belong to Jesus. Somebody who says, uh, I go to church every week, but they're living in sin. They're drunks. They do drugs. they, They, you know, just all kinds of other things. Their language is awful. There's nothing about their character that would remind anybody of Jesus. And we look at them and we say, what makes you think you're a Christian? And often they'll answer that they got baptized or they were saved at an altar call or... I was raised in a Christian home. None of that matters. Not any of that matters. And so Jesus who knows the hearts of all men is the judge. Can you imagine Charlie that day? That day of judgment when we stand before the Lord expecting to be received only to be told that the reservation has been canceled. He wanted us to be there. But we wouldn't believe Him. We chose to live the way we wanted to live instead of living the way Jesus wanted us to live. So what we do matters a lot. Charlie, that just describes the two groups of people inside the church. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ and mean it and those who profess faith in Jesus Christ and don't really mean it. You know, that's a hard pill to swallow. We want everybody to think, or rather we we want to think everybody who says Jesus is really his. Let me give you a clue, Charlie. this, This is what works for me as a pastor. I just respond to people based on the way they're living their lives rather than what they say. If somebody's living the life of an unbeliever, then I share Jesus with them. And when they tell me, well, I'm a Christian. I've been in church before, and I'm this, and I'm that. Well, then, then I ask them, "Well, what makes you think you're a Christian? The way you live, who would know that you're a Christian? And that approach, given in love, makes people think. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Phones have been quiet. We'd love your calls. 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes.
0: back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
1: Welcome back to the second half of the program. I just realized that we only have 30 minutes left in April. How fast is time going? My goodness, I'm so grateful that we're into warmer weather now, but man, time is going. You know, when I come back here, on Monday here at the at the church, uh, we'll be heading into our final three or four weeks in school, and uh, it's, it's it's so busy and everything is going. On. So please pray for for our academy. Um, we have a free school and uh, 135 kids that are anxious to go on vacation. Graduating seniors that have been fighting senioritis for the last couple of months. Um, just pray for a good finish and. And pray for all of our staff. I am so blessed by these wonderful, wonderful people. 340-9585. Let's get back to some questions. Yesterday we had a call from Kevin and we didn't. um, He was on hold too long and had to hang up. So Kevin, if you are listening, I'd love for you to call back. I also think maybe it might be a Kevin who left here and moved uh, with his job to Wichita Falls. So I'd love to say hi to him. So if you're out there, we'd love to take your calls. Here's a question from Rachel. Pastor Ron, what are your thoughts about how casual churches have become? Some denominations are much more formal. Um, Rachel, I my thoughts are, are, I think, a little different than most people. I don't care um, what anybody looks like when they come. Now, obviously, we want people to dress modestly. And that's the standard of dress for Christian men and women. Um, um, But what we're more interested in here is um, people coming with their hearts ready to meet Jesus. I tell the church here all the time, our dress code is simple. We want you to have clothes. But most importantly, we want you to spend more time getting your heart ready for church than you getting your body ready for church. And I think that's a a great rule of thumb. I don't think it matters to Jesus at all. Now I know there are some especially in some of the denominations that you mentioned that take a really formal approach. I'm going to put on my Sunday best for Jesus. But but as we know, a lot of those people will look really good on the outside but but their hearts are really ugly on the inside. But the prosperity churches, the the faith churches, we see people all the time, Rachel, who are dressed like a million bucks. But they're teaching and living false doctrine. So those are the things that bother me. I don't think it matters to Jesus at all what we look like. I think it matters a great deal to him what the condition of our hearts is. So I hope that helps. Let's go to Michelle calling from New Brumfels online line one. Michelle, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
0: Yes, I just had a question about um, false prophets um, nowadays and just how it's so prevalent nowadays. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like it's getting harder to um, teach, um, like, the teens and the kids, you know, with so many young preachers um, that are out there that are not seasoned. Mm-hmm. And how, you know, how do you go about just, Uh, trying to stay clear of those kinds of things. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, it does, Michelle. And it's a a heartbreaking question that it even needs to be asked, but you're absolutely right. And I would add uh, with the advent of social media and YouTube and the platform that some of these people have, I've watched young people. I always beware of hip preachers. (laughs) You know, I'm not a... um, (laughs) I don't spend a lot of time on social media, uh, or, or for that matter on the internet, but whenever it says, Oh, there's this new young, cool preacher. I'm just be careful. And that's not a prejudice against young people at all. Uh, we got some young people here that are wonderfully gifted Bible teachers, but, but here's the thing. We need to be invisible when we're teaching, you know, basically we need to be boring. I don't mean our messages need to be boring. But Jesus is the one who's front and center. And when you see somebody who is putting on a show, somebody who's attracting a large following, and that large following is feeding their ego, they become really, really dangerous. And the way to get popular, Michelle, I'll go one step further, the way to get popular is to tell people what they want to hear, itching ears. And it's just Mm -hmm. one of the things that we have to be very, very careful of. If you're asking as a parent, um, you know, the the one thing you've got to do is drill doctrine into your children from the time that they can understand family devotions, family Bible studies, conversation around the dinner table about Jesus. Show them who the real Jesus is so that when they see a counterfeit, they'll be able instantly to recognize it. Um, You, obviously, Michelle, have discernment. So when you... Here's somebody who's falling off. Make sure that other people in your home uh, aren't exposed to that. Uh, I get YouTube videos sent to me all the time. Pastor Ron, here's a guy that's the greatest thing ever. Oh, I haven't heard it like this before. And and I'll write him back and just say, you know, thanks for sending me, thinking of me, but, but this guy or this girl is, is is heretical. The doctrine is horrible. Please don't listen. And and people, because they know me and they trust me, they'll listen But still, sometimes they won't. They they like somebody. We've got uh, false teachers here in San Antonio. Some of the biggest churches in town are led by people who are Mm -hmm. teaching false doctrine. And it is a heartbreaking thing for somebody like me. Uh, I I basically, Michelle, have no style. Uh, I don't tell funny stories. Um, I don't raise my voice. Uh, I don't uh, put on a show. I can't do any of those things. And when I see people flocking to churches with pastors that do that, it really and truly breaks my heart. So um, discernment is, is, is the way, doctrine is the way. Paul, writing to young Timothy, said, watch your life and doctrine closely. And the reason that matters so much is because we live what we believe. And if our doctrine is sound, then our lives will be on solid ground. If our doctrine is unsound, then we're going to be tossed around by every new wind and wave of doctrine that, that floats. So it's just something that we constantly need to be in prayer about and in our Bibles all the time. Does that help, Michelle?
0: Yes, thank you. Thank you so okay.
1: much. My pleasure, Michelle. Thank you for your heart. Always remember, there's nothing new. We have a saying here at Calvary Chapel, if it's new, it's not true, and if it's true, it's not new. And people that try to be new and cool, uh, watch out for them. And our young people, naturally, are are attracted to, to something that's new and cool. And there just isn't anything. I've got, let me just say this to you too, Michelle, and to the audience. Um, my high school pastor, youth pastor, and and um, our junior high school Bible teacher, um, they are amazing teachers. Our, our high school teacher, I think personally, is a better Bible teacher than I am. And, um, I, I tease him all the time. And, and, and the other guy, Chris too, uh, in junior high, uh, what I love the most about him is they could care less about being cool. Let me tell you something. I love those kids. They're, they're kids to me. They're not, they're, they're like my kids, but they're not really kids. They're, they're men. But, um, if there's anybody as boring in this church as I am, it's those two. They define uncool at least from the world's perspective. But believe me, Michelle, they are super cool to me because all they care about is opening a Bible, standing up there and declaring the truth in love. And regardless of what anybody thinks, that's what they're committed to do. And I treasure them very, very much. 340-95-85, you know what else, Michelle? The kids flock to them. We're having sort of a mini revival in our junior high ministry because these kids, you know, they're exposed to a lot of stuff out there. So we're really reinforcing doctrine and really teaching them. Um, because we know what they're going to be exposed to. And the Holy Spirit's doing a neat thing. Our, our junior high kids, uh, they always want Bible study. So it's a good thing. Thank you for your heart. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. 9585 uh, Miguel writes in. What did Jesus mean when he said we must deny ourselves to be his disciple? Well, Miguel, uh, let me make sure you understand the difference. It's not to be in denial; uh, we're, we're to be real about ourselves. Uh, if I have something that I want, uh, I don't to, to deny that. If there's um, something that that is influencing me to deny that, makes no sense. But to be in Uh, Or rather, to be in denial. But to deny myself means I simply have to make a choice for Jesus. You see, denying me means every day I have to get up and begin my day by saying no to me and yes to Jesus. Miguel, I always picture a, a little throne in my heart and the king who sits on that throne when I wake up every day is King Ron. And so I have to say, okay... You get off of that throne. Jesus, I invite you to take your rightful place on that throne. You're in charge of my life today. Now that's something, Miguel, that we have to do every single day. And that simply means when it comes to a decision about doing something I want to do or something Jesus wants me to do, I've always got to choose what he wants me to do. Saying no to me enables me to say yes to him. If I say yes to me, then I can't say yes to him because my flesh is at war with the Spirit of God who lives in me. And the same thing is true for you. So what Jesus meant was very simple. To follow me, it means you're going to be obedient. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. As you're walking through this this world, if you find yourself giving in to your flesh and to the desires of your flesh, instead of giving obedient response to what Jesus said, well, you're not denying yourself. And if you don't deny yourself, you're simply not a real follower of Jesus. That's what it means, Miguel. I know that's hard because people say, well, I can't be perfect. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. But what he wants us to do when we aren't perfect is hate the fact that we're not perfect. Just hate it. And if we hate it, then we repent quickly. And Jesus says, okay, let's forget about it. Let's walk together again. And that is always, always, Miguel, so encouraging. So I hope that makes sense. Here's an anonymous question. How is it possible to be pro-life and pro-capital punishment? Uh, Anonymous, I get this question maybe every three or four months. and, And those two things aren't even connected now, I know you understand the difference. Everybody does. So I want you to think beyond just sort of the, the bullet points that you get on the news media or when people are, 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 are arguing with you online about these kind of things. If anybody doesn't see the difference between an innocent baby still in the womb who has done nothing wrong and a willful murderer somebody who has taken the life of another human being. If you can't see the difference in those two examples, I don't know what to say to you. I'm pro-life because Jesus is, but I'm also pro-capital punishment because Jesus is. When a man takes the life of another man, he will pay with his own life. That's been established from the Old Testament. The New Testament codifies that. The government has been given the sword, the idea of capital punishment for those who take the lives of others. It's very, very important. We understand there is a sin so grievous that we lose our lives. And when we kill somebody, we forfeit our right to live. So that's being pro-life. I'm pro-victim. I'm pro-the family of the person who is the victim of that crime. But to even equate being pro-life in the term, of the, in in the sense of a life of an unborn child, with taking the life of somebody who is a convicted murderer, defies logic. I mean, it's not even reasonable to put those two things in the same sentence. So yeah, I am pro-life. Uh, I think it is a Sin, it is murder to take the life of an unborn child that has been formed in the womb by God. Now, we know God didn't do it with his finger, but he used the process that he created. And when we understand that, then life becomes sacred. And as Christians, we have to agree with Christ. And then on the other end of that scale, as I've already said, Jesus is also pro-capital punishment because sin has consequences. So I hope that makes sense to you and hopes hope you'll think a little bit more deeply than that. Robert says, Pastor Ron, how can I respond to someone who says Jesus is their truth? Uh, I'm sorry, Jesus is my truth, but not his truth. I don't know how to answer them. Tell them by definition, Robert, the word truth is mutually exclusive. There cannot be two things that contradict one another that are both true. And so by definition, truth is exclusive. And there is objective truth. And anything that conflicts with that objective truth is not true at all. We don't get to choose, is what I'm saying, Robert. So... Uh, Anybody who says that, uh, well, it might be your truth, Ron, but it's not my truth, um, I send them to the dictionary. They understand the illogic of their position. Hope that helps. Let's go to Daniel on line one from San Antonio. Daniel, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
0: Hey, Pastor Ron. uh, Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to ask you a question. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, uh, what do you suppose that the goal of the Christian life to be, and I'll
1: take your answer over the radio. Okay, thank you, Daniel. Um, that's a pretty easy one. Revelation chapter four, eleven. Read it, especially in the King James, Daniel, and it says that the purpose of our life is to worship God. That's the purpose of our life. Now I can be more specific in saying that the purpose of my life is to please God. You know, every day, Daniel, and this is just uh, the. the I'm a routine person, and I, I don't mean I say these things routinely. I mean them with every fiber of my being. But they kind of kickstart my walk every day with the Lord. And, and every day I say, Lord, today of my own free will, I choose to serve Jesus, not by might nor by power, but by your spirit, in your name, and for your glory. And I do that, Daniel, because that's the purpose of my life. Jesus rescued me from the pit of hell. And he has a plan for my life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that, that you, Daniel, and I am his workmanship, his work of art, his, his poem or expression of beauty. And we're created in Christ Jesus to do good works that were created for us to do. So the purpose of our life is not to be happy, it's not to be successful, but to be like Jesus now think about Jesus, Daniel. He didn't have any prospects of marriage. His job uh, wasn't designed to make him successful or wealthy. Uh, he wasn't here to to be universally loved. Jesus was here to die, and every day on this earth was one day, one step closer to that, fulfilling that goal. And when he did it, then he said, "It's finished." Well. Um, You know, I'm almost 68 years old. And one of these days, I'll be finished. I hope later rather than sooner, but one of these days, I'll be finished. And when the Lord says, Ron, it's finished, then I'll go to my reward. And personally, Daniel, I don't want to be a one day more or one day less than, than God's plan for me. But when it's done, He will welcome me into his kingdom. I'll look into those eyes. And I will have fulfilled my purpose here in life. Now there's some smaller purposes that certainly are important. Uh, My purpose is to be Paula's husband. To make Paula feel like the most beautiful, the most precious, the most loved woman on the face of the earth. If I don't do that, then... I'm not fulfilling my purpose in Christ. Uh, I, I'm to be a dad to Ronnie and Terry and their wives and our grandchildren. So that is a goal, a purpose in my life. The purpose of my life is to be a pastor who rightly represents Jesus to the most blessed group of people on planet Earth. The people here at Calvary Chapel, they love me and that's because they know I love them. And my job is to stand before them and rightly divide the Word of God. So there's a lot of little mini-purposes in there that fit into the bigger purpose. But the one thing that we can never lose sight of, Daniel, is that it is our goal to please God, to worship Him. And we do that not just with song, not just with words, but we do it with our actions. And you'll have no problem knowing that you're fulfilling your purpose. I don't mean to talk about me anymore, but but one more comment. There's nothing quite like getting up every day and knowing beyond any doubt that I'm right in the middle of God's perfect will. No, he reserves the right to change that at any time. I'm getting so old, I don't think he will. But, but, but he reserves the right to change that in any of our lives at any time, Daniel. But when I wake up tomorrow morning, no matter what in the world is going on, I know that this one man, and I can say the same thing for paula we're one flesh. We are right in the middle of God's perfect pleasing, acceptable will. And that is a glorious place to be. I don't wish I was anywhere else. There isn't anything else on this planet I'd rather be doing. I'm not looking for money. I'm certainly not looking for fame. Because every day I'm satisfied overwhelmingly so. Because I know what my job is to please Jesus. Jesus said if you find your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for Him, then you'll find it. I guess I should have started with this. I could have stopped these last five minutes of talking. That's the purpose of our life, to lose it for Jesus' sake. And then he gets almost giddy with joy because he knows what awaits you. So Daniel, thank you. Great question. Here's the last one of the day. Is there, this is from Richard, I'm sorry. Is there, three minutes, okay. Is there one part of the Bible that's more authoritative than others, like the Gospels over Paul's letters? Um, no, Richard, there isn't remember, we read the Gospels, we see the red letters, and people sometimes attach more importance to the words of Jesus. But every word in your Bible is written by Jesus. Everyone. The law and the prophets testify of him. He is the focus of the Bible from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. So there is nothing that's more authoritative than another part of the Bible. You know, sometimes people say, yeah, but the Bible only says that one time. How many times does God have to say something before we recognize that that's exactly what he wants us to do. So no, um, the New Testament might be more relevant, it might be more practical, but it's not any more authoritative. Um, it, it would be like asking when God's finger uh, carved out the the stone tablets and put the the Ten Commandments on those tablets for Moses. Moses saying, well okay, you give me 10 of them which ones are the most important? They all matter a great, great deal. So, Richard, um, your Bible is one beautifully, wonderfully constructed letter from Jesus to his people. And as you obey the things that are clear to you, you will get more insight in things that aren't clear, but everything is equally authoritative. And that means we can't throw any part of it out we can't say, well, I like this, but I don't like that. And sadly, Richard, that's what a lot of Bible teachers are doing. You know, they, That's why we do sermons instead of teaching through the Bible, because that way we can avoid the things that we don't want to talk about. And I love the way that the Lord has instructed me personally to teach through the Bible, because it means that I can't ever let my biases influence the choices of what I teach. I'm going to get to everything eventually. If God leaves me here, we'll do the whole Bible. I've done the whole New Testament um, several times in our church. We have two New Testament days, Friday and Sunday. Uh, The Old Testament, I haven't gone all the way through yet, but but certainly most of it. So it's all the very Word of our Holy God. Richard, thank you for the question. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And I'll be back, Lord willing, tomorrow in AM 630, The Word. We'll see you at 4 o'clock. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4. And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at CalvarySA.com.